you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. We'll be starting at the near the end of chapter 5 and going through chapter 6. I'm not going to read the whole thing now because it's a lot, um, but I will be reading it as we go through. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel in the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us this lengthy exposition of the Ten Commandments, where you graciously teach us about yourself and about us. You teach us that grace always precedes the law, it never follows it. But it's hard for us to hear that. It's hard for us to believe that. It's hard for us to trust you. It's hard for us to love you. So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us to consider what it really means to love and obey your law. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us know God and see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, it seems that everyone is feeling somewhat fragmented these days. Has human life ever been more separated between the different spheres of life, family and friends, virtual and physical, social media and social circles, urban diversity and suburban angst, work and life and play? Now, in America, there's always been this opposing tendency towards simplicity. The Puritans define themselves around a simple life that culminated in simple worship on Sunday morning. Uh, Joanne and I grew up near Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts, made famous by Henry David Thoreau, and the site of one of his many uh, deliberate self-exiles in the woods, where he'd go off to the woods for a while and think of deep and profound things. And uh, he returned from the woods with his famous proclamation that we needed to simplify, simplify, simplify. He was arguing that the good life is revealed in the alarmingly simple tasks needed in order for one to survive. And that such simplicity is better than the fragmented life complicated by the emerging technologies of the mid-19th century. From our perspective here in the 21st century, we would simply say to him now, you have no idea. The search for the simple life continues today. I find it particularly among um, the educated classes, so if you can look at the educated elite of Metro Washington, D.C., we find people who want a return to simple clothing, minimalist design, local dining, and thinking about all these things while thumbing through the latest edition of Real Simple magazine. But the effect is limited. We set out to eat, pray, love, but we often end up with binge, purge, repeat, regret. All of this interest in simplicity is fine. Some of it is even wise. But you have to notice the logic. It's working from the theory that if we can simplify things outside of ourselves, our clothes, our furniture, our homes, our travel, our food, our relationships, our children's schedules, 
then we'll find ourselves becoming simpler. In short, the, this new push for simplification is aimed at our circumstances, the world around us. Not that there's anything wrong with that, and that can be gratifying. But the Bible talks about a very different kind of simplification. The scriptures call us to a simplicity that springs up within the heart of one who loves the God who is one. There's nothing wrong with eating a diet of raw food and wearing underwear sewn from locally grown cotton. But the biblical notion of simple living doesn't arise from a description of our lifestyle, but it arises from the character of the God who gives us life. In fact, this is the theology of Deuteronomy. The character of the God who loves us makes claims on who we are and what we are to love for ourselves. And there's a small section, just two verses, in Deuteronomy known as the Shema. And uh, that's spelled S-H-E-M-A. Sometimes there's an H on the end. Depends whether you're trying to spell it in Hebrew or English. Um, but it comes, Shema comes after the first word, which in Hebrew means to hear, but often means to obey. And it's been considered ever since it was written to be the core, the beating heart, if you will, of the covenant under Moses. And we find it in our text for today, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the Shema. Some versions say, on all your might. I think in Deuteronomy, it's all your might. Most of the New Testament quotations, it's all your strength. And to this day, a devout Orthodox Jew will recite this first thing in the morning, last thing at night, and pray that those will be the last words on their lips when they die. To this day, it's that important. The Shema provides a simple summary of every claim the Lord makes on the life of his people. And the claim is simple in many senses of the word. It's marvelously simple, and yet it's also challenging. It can be terrifying, and yet life-giving in its simplicity. We see that God's character as one, as whole, as simple, demands a response from us of one undivided, simple love. Whether public or private, individual or corporate, spiritual or physical, God's people are to be simply and wholly in love with God. Ever since the fall, there's been this constant slide towards a divided life. And to answer that problem, God has given us the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as I've said, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons Moses preached just before he died. And in it, he lays out in a most comprehensive, very practical way how you should live if you experience the grace and salvation of God. And if you're in a covenant relationship with God, how should that 
actually affect the way in which you live your life. It's actually a very practical book, and it's a very comprehensive book. And the verses of the Shema are easily the most important verses in all of Deuteronomy. And many scholars would argue the most important verses in the Old Testament. And some would even say the most important verses in the entire Bible. After all, when Jesus was asked what was most important, what did he say? Well, we find his answer in Mark 12. And he says one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him which commandment is the most important of all. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. When Jesus was asked what was most important, he quoted the Shema. In fact, the Shema is quoted either in full or in part around 15 times in the New Testament. It is the core confessional text of Judaism for good reason. And in this passage, you have a compact description of what it means not just to know about God, and not just to sort of believe in God in some vague, general way, but to know God in a personal way, in a relational way. Not just to know about God, but to actually know God. And Moses tells us here, there's five things that we need to learn, and that we uh, I have to do, you might say there are five requirements or five aspects of knowing God. And the first one is we need to hear the Lord. Probably not a surprise, starting at uh, chapter 5, verse 22. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and he gave them to me, as Moses is speaking. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still lives. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Now they're speaking directly to Moses. Go near and hear all the Lord our God will say. And speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear it and do it. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you, stand here by me, 
And I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, and that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Starting now, verse 1 of chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, several of this book's key words appear in that passage. We have hear three times, fear twice, keep, teach, and do. But the main one is hear. The people are told six times in the book of Deuteronomy, they're addressed with the words, Hear, O Israel. The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright says, It is a constant reminder that Israel is a people summoned by God to hear God's word. They're not merely spectators at a divine show, but they're recipients of the divine revelation in words. They were to hear the truth and respond to it. And yet they're amazed that God spoke with them. Look again at verse 24. Moses is talking to them and says, And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. And then down in the middle of verse 25. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God? speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and as still live. Verse 27, I love this. Now they're telling Moses, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God would say. Think about it. If we hear God's voice, we're going to die. Moses, why don't you go? Yeah, maybe you'll die, maybe you won't. But it won't be us. It's not something they take for granted. Now, at Sinai, Moses had learned that no one can see God and live, and the Israelites are now as terrified as the sound, at the sound of God's voice as they had been at the sight of God's face, which they were not allowed to see at Sinai. And yet they're trying to believe this truth that sinners can hear God's voice and live. And you think about it, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, with Adam and Eve after the fall, they're naked and afraid. They hid from the sound of the Lord as he walked in the garden in Genesis 3. And they, fear was understandable. Adam was put under a sentence of death for eating the fruit from the tree. And what did God have to say to him except to pronounce his doom? And yet when God did speak to Adam, it was to reason with him. So it might lead him to repentance and to set forth the promise of a Savior, God's 
uh, voice is amazingly gracious under the circumstances. And although God is merciful, the Israelites still approach him with caution. They know that they enjoy this unique privilege that God had condescended to speak with them through Moses. And there's a sense here, as I said, you know, if we hear God speak, we're going to die. Hey, Moses, you go, you hear God speak. I'm sure it'll be fine. Now, the reality is Moses is a unique individual, for he was able to speak with God and not die. That's actually why the Israelites asked Moses to go, to be their mediator. They asked God to speak to them through Moses. And through that same mediator, they pledge obedience to God. This is the only way sinful people can relate to a holy God. They need a mediator. Just like the Israelites. We are summoned together as God's people to speak of God, to sing about God, to worship God. It is no small thing to dare to speak of God. And we actually claim that we teach what God has taught. There ought to be a bit of humility recognizing the audacity of that claim. I mean, it would be a baseless claim, an incredible claim, if God not had, had not spoken from the midst of the fire and allowed us to hear him. On what authority uh, do we speak? Is it the authority of our denomination? It's no small thing, but it's not enough. To dare speak of these things, we invoke the authority of God himself. For he alone can reveal himself, speak these things, and tell us what we should know. And he commands us to hear him. It's not enough. He also tells us that we need to believe the Lord. Look again at verse 4. We need to believe the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What does that mean, the Lord is one? The dominant belief of the ancient Near East was that there were many gods depending on uh, the region or the country. Every country had its own god. Every region had its own god. And you had a mountain god and a sea god and so on and so forth. But if you stop and think about it, the dominant belief of today is that there's many gods. But it depends on the individual. Because today the dominant belief is everybody has the right to believe in God however it's meaningful to them. And therefore, there's many gods. But here God is saying, no. There's only one real God, and it's me. And you don't get to construct me. I construct you. And therefore, there aren't many versions of me depending on any of you. There's only one of me, and you depend on me. As the Apostle Paul said in Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. And God is telling them with this statement, the Lord is one, there's only one of me. I'm real. I'm as real as gravity. I'm as real as death. I'm real whether you believe in me or not. There's a kind of, a kind of a there-ness about God. There's a reality to God. He says, if you want to know me, you have to know me as I really am. You can't just make up whatever you want me to be. 
Therefore, you have to know me as I reveal myself to be in the scriptures. Now, for some people, that may sound a little narrow-minded. Oh my, you believe there's only one true God. Isn't that narrow-minded? Well, no more narrow-minded than you. Don't you think there's only one you? If somebody comes up to you today, to come up to you after church, and said, you know, I'm going to write a book about you. Oh, really? What's in it? Well, I like to think of you as an astronaut, brilliant at math, but very abrasive and terrible at relationships. So you respond, well, I'm scared of heights. I flunked math. And actually, I think I'm kind of a nice person. And the person says, well, you know, that doesn't matter. This is how I think of you. I mean, you might get a little annoyed. You might get angry. Because there's a reality here that that person needs to honor. And if not exists, then he would be, if anything, more real than you. What's wrong with him saying, you have to get to know me as I really am? You can't make up stuff about me. You can't make up your mind as to who you want me to be. You can't know me unless you know me as I am. You can't know me if you create me. You can only know me if you discover me. Now, perhaps you feel this is still a little too narrow-minded for me. Well, let me help you out with some ironic truth. Because ironically, the God uh, that your heart most desperately needs is a God your heart didn't create. Your heart most desperately needs a God you didn't create because at some point in your life, you're going to have days where you feel worthless. You're going to want to borrow that book we gave Frank. You're going to feel like you have no value. And how can a God that you know you invented come and say, nope, you're wrong, you're valuable? <coughs> At some point in your life, you're going to feel guilty. And maybe you will be guilty. But how can a God that you know you made up come and say you're forgiven? The deepest need of your heart is for a God you didn't invent, but you discovered. A God you know is real whether you want to believe in him or not. But truth be told, it's hard to believe in a God you don't love. So that's the third requirement for knowing God. We need to love the Lord. Again, starting at verse 4, reading through verse 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The second thing that Shema says is you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. As I said, the New Testament version says strength, and some add heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every fiber of your being, 
Now, the first thing we think of when we read a command like that is it's kind of, it's a little weird. I mean, how do you command someone to love? Is it love a feeling? Well, in part, yes, but not completely, and that's the point. If love is just a feeling, if it's just an emotion, when you love someone, you're only loving them with part of you. But the command here is to love them with your whole life. Now, if you want to know what that means, here's two tests to tell whether or not you're loving God with your whole life. But first, let's look back again at the passage, verse 6. It's talking about how your individual life has changed. It says, these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And then it goes on and uh, it says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, you shall talk with them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And some of you have seen that uh, pictures of Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall, and they have scripture bound to their hands and arms and uh, a little box called the phylactery, and you're trying to be obedient to this command as a frontlet between your eyes. Is that what it's talking about? Look again at what it says. It says basically in the home and on the road, your private life and your public life, when you're out doing your job, on your hand, between your eyes. Between your eyes means what you're thinking inside, on your hand, what you're doing, how you're acting outside. Internal and external, no division. When you lie down and when you rise, that's your entire waking life. It's every part of your life. To write them on the doorposts of your house means to apply it to your family, to your home. And on your gates means you're applying it to your public life. That's what it's saying. If you love God with your whole heart, it means you love God in your whole life. You don't just love God on the weekends. You don't just love God in your private life, but not in your public life. You don't love God with this person, but not with that person, because you don't want them to think you're a fanatic. In other words, you're supposed to go into every single corner of your life, your entire waking life, public, private, inner, outer, and should be constantly asking how does who God is and what God says affect how I think, how I act, how I speak, how I live. Absolutely every single nook and cranny of your life is to be affected by the love of God. That's what it means. And if we're not doing that, if we're not working that out, if we're only going to God when we're in trouble or when we need some inspiration, then we're not loving God with all our heart, soul, and strength. We're not loving God with our whole life. But that's just the first part. The second thing is, it's not just your individual life, it's also your corporate life. What are those words? Hear, O Israel. God is not just calling you as an individual to love God. God is calling all of us who love him to be part of a community of people that he's called to love him. To be part of a community means you have to be in relationship with these people. And that's not going to happen if you just show up and listen on Sundays. Because it's not just who you listen to, it's who you talk to. It's who you hang out with that makes you who you are. When Moses talks about binding them on your hands and writing them on your doorposts, note 
the preceding context again, verse 6, he says, they shall be on your heart. It appears once again, Moses is using these outward physical realities of binding on the hands and the doorposts and the gates to illustrate an important inner spiritual truth. If that sounds familiar, it's because that's how we describe the sacraments. We say they're a physical sign of a spiritual reality. In other words, Moses desires that God's word would be bound to the hearts of each Israelite. Just like bracelets and headbands are bound to their owners, out in the open, public view, never to be forgotten or neglected. But again, we won't do that if we don't trust Him. So the fourth thing here is we need to trust the Lord, starting at verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you, are, when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. It's a lot. Did you notice verse 16? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. That's a reference to Exodus 17. The children of Israel were out in the desert. They thought they were going to die of thirst and said, Moses, how about this? We're going to kill you and go back to Egypt. And basically what they're saying is we'll follow God if he proves to us that he's worthy of following by giving us some water. Well, here's the definition of the word test, biblically. To test is to consider someone guilty until proven innocent. Guilty until proven innocent. To put God to the test is basically to say, I'll follow you as long as my life is going the way I want it to go. I'll follow you as long as I'm getting answers and explanations to my questions. I'll follow you as long as you prove yourself worthy. But then the problem comes about when we find ourselves in the wilderness, when we have health problems, we have career disappointments, we have relationship disappointments, things aren't going well, and we start to talk like this. We actually talked about this in an adult Sunday school class this morning, uh, Romans 9. What's God doing? Everything's going wrong. I'm not going to follow him unless he starts to make things right. That's testing God. And let me tell you why that doesn't work. 
Because if you say, as long as God starts to turn my life around, as long as things start to go well again, then I'll believe and then I'll follow God, that makes you think that you're smart enough to know the proof of his love, that you'll even recognize it. You know the end from the beginning? Could you possibly know whether or not he's doing the best thing for you right now? You can't. Now, if there's no God, no problem. But if there is a God, you have to trust him unconditionally. You have to trust him without explanations. You have to trust him without your questions being answered. Either there's no God and it doesn't matter, or there is a God and you have to trust him without conditions. But what you can't do is what some of these Israelites are doing, what some of us are doing or have done, which is, we'll follow God as long as he comes through for me. How will you know if he's coming through for you or not? You can't know. You won't know. You have to trust God unconditionally. One other note, some of these verses may have sounded familiar to you because these verses were important for Jesus right before he began the start of his earthly ministry when he went through the temptation in the wilderness. And like the Israelites in the desert, he was in the wilderness. And like uh, then he had basic physical needs. They were thirsty, he was thirsty. They were hungry, he was hungry. And the enemy came to taunt him just as he attempted them. And Jesus refused to put God to the test. He responded to the devil's suggestions by quoting these very words from Deuteronomy uh, 6. And so we read in Luke 4.12, Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And as God's son, Christ knew that he had a caring father. The father would scarcely have initiated his son's mission by letting him die in the desert. But because he was determined to serve God and nobody else, Jesus firmly rejects the devil's attacks and he uses these words from Deuteronomy 6 to send him away. When Israel was tempted, she responded by putting God to the test, acting unfaithfully. On the other hand, when Jesus is put to a similar test, similar temptation, similar trial, he refuses to test God. He doesn't complain, he doesn't quarrel, he doesn't grumble, he doesn't murmur, he acts faithfully and he doesn't demand proof before he acts faithfully. If you remember the scene, it's in Luke and Mark and Matthew. The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, all the riches and all their glory, and says he's going to give them all to Jesus if all you need to do is worship me. And Jesus responds to Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, in the Old Testament context, Moses is warning Israel about idolatry. And Israel, of course, is guilty of idolatry, often. The most famous case is the golden calf at Sinai. But Jesus would not worship Satan for all the kingdoms and all the riches the world has to offer. There's a deliberate contrast here, and it's stunning. And the heart of Jesus' response to the devil is just one weapon. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians 6, 17. Jesus doesn't debate with the devil. 
He merely speaks the word of God, and he's obedient to it. And that's precisely what Moses is calling for here in Deuteronomy. Israel will have success if she keeps and obeys God's word. But she's going to have to, just like us, trust God to do it. And then finally, when I say the best for last, we need to tell the story. We need to tell the story, starting in verse 20. When your son asked you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules the Lord our God has commanded us? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now, most children go through a why phase, right? Do you remember that? You know how that goes. I want you to make your bed. Why? I want you to brush your teeth. Why? I want you to stop asking that question. Why? Now hopefully, they'll grow out of that. But if not, they'll eventually move out. <laughs> However, when it comes to moral change, we need answers to the why question. And in this section, we get some. In verse 20, a son asks his father the question, what is the meaning of these laws? Now, I'm not going to go into all the details, but basically, here's what the son is saying. Dad, I see you obeying God. I see you trusting God. I see you loving God. But why should I obey God? Why should I trust God? Why should I love God? That's essentially what he's asking. Why should I? And what's interesting is the answer doesn't go right to verse 24 because verse 24 says God commanded it. God said so. And I want you to know over the years, I'd say in general, when kids ask parents about obey, most of us, we go right to verse 24. Because I said so. Well, here it's because God said so. And so in other words, why should I obey the commandments? The answer is another command. Why should I obey God? Because he's God. You just have to. And that's true. And in the short term, you'll get compliance. But in the long run, that's not going to satisfy a child's heart. And in the long run, that won't even satisfy your heart. Here's what's so great about Deuteronomy 6. The answer to why should I obey God, trust God, love God, is not another command, but a story. This is what the father's supposed to say. He's not going to it doesn't tell him to say, well, you have to do it because he's God. He tells the child the story of the gospel. The meaning of the law is found in the gospel. I told you last week, grace always precedes law. So what's the story of the gospel? It's the story of God coming into history to save us by his grace. Now, the version of the story this father tells, of course, is the only one they had at the time, the grace they knew, which is the story of the Exodus. Now, in the Exodus, we're told the Israelites were in slavery 
And God broke into history with ten plagues, mighty acts, and an outstretched arm. But the ten plagues are terrible judgments uh, of God on human sin. So how did the Israelites get out? I mean, they're human. They're as sinful as anybody else. They're in Egypt when the angel of death came down. How did they get out? Well, the answer is the blood of the Lamb. See, before this commandment, Deuteronomy 6, to put the law on your doorposts, the blood went on the doorposts. On the night of Passover, when everyone else is dying under the judgment of God, the Israelites took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. They killed the Lamb, they ate it, they put the blood on the doorposts so that the judgment of God passed over, what we call Passover. They hid themselves under the blood. That's the answer, at least as far as they knew at the time. Why should I obey the law? The answer is not, we obey the law or God's going to get us. It's not, we obey the law so God will take us to heaven. It's not, we obey the law so God will give us blessings and all sorts of stuff. It's God blessed us. Therefore, we obey the law. God saved us. Therefore, we obey the law out of gratitude. We don't obey the law out of fear, but out of love and out of gratitude. Before the law went on our doorposts, the blood was on our doorposts. And that's the reason we can put the law on our doorposts, because we already know that God is for us and has chosen us by His grace. So the meaning of the law is found in God's salvation and in God's grace, and therefore we obey God, we trust God, we love God, out of gratitude, my son. That's wonderful. And yet even that can only go so far. Because what if the son asks, and I'm sure this happened over the years, but dad, how did the blood of the lamb do anything for our sins? And at that point, the father's probably saying, you know, I kind of wondered about that myself. But John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus walking along, got it. He said, John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist says, I get it. The Lambs actually didn't take away our sins. They're a symbol. Here's the one, God himself, come to take the judgment to absorb our sins. That's how you know you can trust him unconditionally. It's not just enough to say to our heart, we have to trust him because he's God and you're just a stupid sheep. That'll work for a while. But in the end, you have to say the shepherd became the sheep. The shepherd became the lamb who was sacrificed. The invulnerable became vulnerable and he did it for you. And you love him, and we love him, because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8, God chose his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's why you can obey him, and that's why you can trust him, and that's why you can love him, because he loved you first. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our failure to love you, let alone your law. We struggle to believe and to trust you. Lord, there are times we aren't even able to hear you, even though you've given us your word. And we forget to tell the story of the gospel. Lord, sometimes we just forget the gospel itself. We forget that Jesus fulfilled the law, and while we were still sinners, took our sins upon himself and died for us. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to remember, to remember the law, to remember to love, remember to tell the story of who you are and what you have done. Grant that we may live like people who love the law because we love you. And work in each of us this year as we learn more about knowing God. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word and through the book of Deuteronomy, draw us ever closer to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.